2: hi everyone and welcome back to the squiggly careers podcast i'm helen and i'm here as ever with sarah hi everyone and this is the fourth and final week of our squiggly career stories takeover that was actually quite hard to say <laughs> on the squiggly careers podcast that's why we're not doing it anymore. yeah yeah what that's it <laughs> we've discovered that we just can't say that anymore it has been a month of oh i mean so much stuff the book coming out as having the opportunity to talk to some amazing people
1: and this episode was a really really special episode And this week might sound a bit different because we were recording the podcast with a live audience of about 150 people, including lots of our friends and family. Uh, Some of you probably listening might have even been there. We shared some photos today on Instagram at Amazing If if you want to have a look at it and kind of see what the format was for the evening. You will also be able to watch it. So we filmed it for the first time. We don't usually film our podcasts, but we thought we'd try it out so particularly with today's speakers we thought you might want to sort of be able to see them as well as listen to them so if you go to our squiggly careers channel on youtube in the next week or so hopefully that will be up there we'll make sure we put a notification out when it's ready to go we just need to give the team a bit of time to do a bit of editing on that well also the squiggly careers channel on youtube we said that like everyone knew what it was it's quite new and we've started
2: to put some career tips in there as talking about growth mindset different topics so as well as that video of the event that you're going to hear in a second we've also got some other little career tips tricks tools all sitting on the squiggly careers channel and that's going to grow as well
1: So what you're going to hear now is three really inspirational, quite different, but I think they still had lots of things in common, squiggly career stories, and then at the end, a bit of a special guest that wasn't really kind of advertised before, but we won't talk about it too much more, because you're going to hear lots of introductions, you're going to hear them directly. We really hope you enjoy the episode, and we'll be back at the end. So I'm delighted to welcome our first guest this evening, Jack Graham. You're going to hear a lot about Jack and kind of what he does and the work that he does. So I thought I would introduce him instead about who he is and kind of what he means to me. So Jack and I met about seven or eight years ago. And networking is something that in the past I've always been really scared of. Definitely something I would always want to avoid. But once we started talking about networking in the context of Squiggly Careers and thinking about it as people helping people... I just think that Jack, for me, is the person who's kind of the epitome of that. He just starts with what he can give. He is incredibly generous with his knowledge and his insight and his expertise. He is doing incredible work that is making a real kind of difference in the world that you'll get to hear about. And so I'm so delighted that, A, he's back from Mexico and his travels around the world, and that, secondly, he agreed to be interviewed this evening. So welcome, Jack. Thank you so much.
3: Not at all, thanks for
1: that intro. No problem. So Jack, everybody always asks now, you know, what do you do? That's the first question. So instead, I thought it would be more interesting to start with, how do you spend your time in a week at the moment? What does a week look like in the life of Jack Graham?
3: Ooh, well, uh, life is quite different now to how it was a year ago. So as you alluded to, I took a sabbatical last year. So the first half of last year was quite different to the second half. It's mostly like, drinking margaritas, eating tacos, having a lovely time. Now I am part-time at my day job, the company that I founded, as well as a couple of freelance gigs. So I'm kind of often on my bike between different offices, um, trying to get my head around what, how I can be useful in various different projects. So it's quite a kind of patchwork at the moment in this part of my career so far.
1: And Year Here, so I was looking to see how you describe Year Here and it. You kind of attract to a program people who are driven to tackle society's toughest problems. So tell us a bit about Year Here and how it works and kind of the sorts of businesses that have emerged from Year Here, because I think everybody here will be really interested to learn more.
3: Of course. So Year Here is the company that I started eight years ago now. And Year Here is essentially a course in social entrepreneurship and an incubator all in one. So we attract people who are kind of mid-career, care deeply about social purpose, perhaps are not in that profession right now and really want to kind of make a change. And they essentially come to us with the will to kind of set something up, but little more than that. So we give them insight into the kind of frontline issues they might tackle from homelessness to elderly isolation. We also give them a whole host of skills. We have a faculty of 80 people who teach on the course. And really importantly, as well, a network so they can meet their potential co-founders and ultimately get seed funding to get their social enterprises set up. So, so far, we have launched 30 new social enterprises and we've got five more. Probably some of our best known are Chatterbox, which is a language tuition company staffed by refugees set up by Masal Hadayat, who was a 2015 fellow who uh, she herself was an Afghan refugee and saw this opportunity to kind of. Unlock the untapped talents of refugees for the kind of language learning market, and that is doing incredibly well. She's like, Every time I pick up the Evening Standard, I see her face. <laughs> then we've got Cracked It, which is a tech repair service, um, staffed by young people leaving gangs, set up by Josh Babarindo, and Birdsong, which I should have worn tonight. So, Birdsong yeah. is a fashion brand.
1: Birdsong was on my list to talk about, yeah. yeah so, Birdsong.
3: Birdsong are amazing, they're one of our kind of veteran ventures, and they're essentially like a feminist fashion brand whose suppliers are all women's groups around London. So they're founded by three fellows on the programme who are all based in women's services and found that often there was a little knitting project or jewelry making projects um but they'd sell kind of one garment a year and they thought hang on a second isn't there an opportunity to kind of sell this stuff which is really high quality stuff to kind of a mass market millennial feminists who care about the fashion industry and care about its fairness and they have just totally smashed it they've got their fans including like Vivian Westwood and all sorts and they're doing incredibly well so I could never have imagined what they would come up with, these guys, but um, just every year we see more and more of these incredible ventures coming out of the programme.
1: So it's very much a programme where I think you learn by doing, which is something we're kind of big advocates of, but learn in a very intentional way. Mm-hmm. And you said um, just then, oh, you know, you never could have imagined it. So how did you imagine it? What, what, what did the start feel like? Oh where, did you, where did you begin?
3: You know what, I was thinking about this. The truth is that the start wasn't that fun. So I don't think of myself naturally as an entrepreneur. And I think when I had the idea of you here, almost immediately after, I had this, like, massive dread. It's almost like you can suddenly see this mountain that you want to climb, and you know you're going to climb, but you're like, oh, shit, that's literally the last thing I want to do. Um, And I had quite a lot of anxiety, actually, in the very early stages, because when you start a company, you're kind of foisting something on the world that the world hasn't necessarily asked for. So you find yourself in sales mode, like, all the time, like christmas dinner or a, what, a <laughs> party or whatever like what do you do and i mean everyone... i can
1: sell anyone a book now
3: <laughs> and everyone has an opinion you know if i was just like i'm a lawyer or whatever if i was just doing a regular job people would be like cool but because i'm an entrepreneur people love to dive in and when you're feeling quite vulnerable and you're like i'm not even sure about it yet and i don't know if i'm capable so those early days were actually really really tough for me but i'm so glad that i went on that transition because i think it changes you kind of permanently when you set something up, we had this, this is a bit cheesy, but me and my very close friend, Cynthia Shanma-Galingam, who's a restaurateur, she and I both started our companies at the same time, and she had this term of the garden of possibility. Bit cheesy, but the idea being basically there is this space, this garden, where you can do whatever you want, whether it's writing a film script, starting a restaurant, starting a social enterprise, and I guess both of us felt like we didn't really belong there, like she's from Coventry and I'm from Bath, and we just had pretty normal upbringings didn't really feel like we were particularly like entitled to be one of those like change makers and entrepreneurs and leaders and then you find yourself in that position you're like oh actually like entry to this world is free like it is available to everyone and it's so much of it is just kind of a mindset of like this is for other people but once you can just like smash through that the opportunities are like endless to apply that same spirit of entrepreneurialism and bold decision making to every aspect of your life
1: So you talked about um, particularly the early days were tough. And I think Mm -hmm. that's often said that when you're doing your own thing, the roller coaster analogy, the highs are higher, the lows are lower. What helped you through some of those tougher times? Was it mentors, just time to reflect, a bit of grit and just getting through it, Mm -hmm. a bit of a combination of those things?
3: Yeah, definitely a combo. So I think one of the amazing things about you here is that it's like all about people. So from the fellows who do the program to our faculty, our mentors. So I'm just surrounded by like people I admire, people I love. So that's been incredibly useful to have that kind of family. And again, cheesy, but it it, it really is true that you here is a family and that we all kind of support each other in all sorts of different ways. So that has been really useful. And I think the fact that I was in the same boat as... The people that I was working with, so the fellows, was really helpful because I could just, you know, give them some real talk about what it's like to run an enterprise. And I think meeting people on that level as peers was a really useful thing, hopefully for them and definitely for me. All the people who have helped in all sorts of like microscopic ways, like, for example, it's my brother's 40th birthday and I was so flat out with work, I just totally forgot. And he forgave me for, like, not turning up to his party. Um, it's that kind of thing that it's, like, over and over again, you're basically just a bit of a dick to your family and your friends because you're so obsessed <laughs> don't with... Don't say that. <laughs>
1: Mine are here. Like, don't, <laughs> I don't want you to remind them. Um,
3: and so the kind of just forgiveness that people have allowed me because they know that this occupies, like, 95% of my life. A little bit less now, but certainly in the early days, it was all-consuming.
1: And Jack wrote a brilliant article which you can get on Medium about work and how work is changing. I think it is called um, Don't Do What You Love, Do Something Useful. Talk to us a bit about what you mean by that. So there are these kind of pithy statements um, over lots of buildings and places Mm -hmm. going, you know, shouting at us, almost telling us, follow your passions, do what you love. What kind of prompted you to write that article and what do you mean by useful?
3: Well, so... This one started with, I was on the tube and I saw this lady with a T-shirt saying, do what you love. And I was like, why does that irritate me? And I thought the first thing was like, it's like simple and it's kind of seductively simple. Like, oh, that's what I should have been doing. Just like, do what I love. So easy. (laughs) I mean, why are we here? Secondly, I thought it was a bit of an advertisement of her privilege. So I was like, well, you know, some people aren't in a position to do what they love and they just got to like, do what they can to survive and get by. And I think also there's just... An element of like self centeredness, and this is where I myself have some questions because you know self care and ultimately like self love are really important, and things that I think i as i 've grown I have um, got better at like i wasn 't always good at those things, but i 've realized that they 're super important. but when your like life or career mantra is like solely centered on basically yourself i don 't have time for that I think it 's self centered ultimately. And then, lo and behold, I found out that it came from WeWork. At the time, I wrote this article, and WeWork were about to go for this big IPO, their initial public offering, and they had this crazy like investment deck, which had some of the most awful like marketing guff, and they had this insanely high valuation... And then I don't know if you guys follow the story, but basically it completely crashed. The CEO had a $60 million private jet uh, that was taken off him. He was pushed out of the company. And I think actually we work, if you guys have been to we work, you know, it's like Prosecco on tap. Everyone's like super gorgeous and hip and glamorous. And you're like, this isn't right. This doesn't feel sustainable. This isn't what life and work, like life is messy and hard and not that glamorous sometimes. I think especially if you're doing stuff that's about making society better and like at this point in time we have got like insane levels of inequality the world literally might end pretty soon like with climate chaos and to be kind of focused on this kind of Prosecco on Tap culture and looking great and saying yeah we're doing what we love just feels like wrong to me and actually we need to like get our hands dirty with some of the issues that really matter and that might not look super hip and glamorous but it's the most important work that we can do.
1: And so last year, you mentioned you went on a sabbatical after how long a year here? Uh, That was
3: like seven and a half years. Yeah. So what prompted (laughs)
1: that? And what was because that's a big it was a big deal for you, I think, to step away and to kind of leave something that you have grown and spent a lot of time and energy investing in. Knowing you, I can't imagine that was easy. No, it wasn't.
3: It wasn't. And it was my best mate, Cynthia, who who eventually unlocked it for me. She's like, maybe you just need a break. And I was like. Oh my God, that is what I need. (laughs) Because I'd been flat out, you know, I hadn't taken more than like a week's holiday. I'd neglected all sorts of aspects of my life my family life, my love life, like everything had suffered as a result of me throwing everything I had at you here. Like I recognize it's a very privileged position to be able to afford to go away for six months and, and not earn any money. But it was just an extraordinary, like, it was exactly what the doctor ordered. It was like completely recuperative read more books than I've read in the last 10 years, um, did yoga, did all those good self-care things, and it was just great. It was perfect, yeah.
1: And how do you make decisions now about what you want to be doing with your time and kind of how you spend your time? Mm-hmm. So we often talk about it's very difficult to make career plans with the amount of uncertainty and ambiguity, and if the world's going to end, sort of a waste of time mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. But if you're thinking about even like what you want to be doing in the next three months, in the next six months, And as you said, these kind of big arbitrary do what you love statements are not that helpful for that in terms Mm -hmm. of guiding us or certainly not guiding the majority of us. What do you use as your kind of compass to sort of guide Mm -hmm. your decisions?
3: Good question. So again, I think it's like passion comes from application. Like you have to try stuff and you have to know kind of what you might be interested in trying. So I think what Mexico was really helpful for was helping me just look a bit outside of my kind of little world and think about other bits and pieces obviously at the time over 2019 it was brexit and all sorts of like political mayhem so that was one of the things like over the last few months i've become i guess more politically engaged than i think i've ever been one of the fellows stood for parliament so I helped him campaigning and also the all our alumni so we've got about 160 alumni now and they kind of self-organized this massive group the whatsapp group may have been called stop the tories and and it was about 70 of them and I was like, this is incredible, this wave so I kind of got stuck in with that and I don't know where that's going to lead but I think I would like to continue to be a bit more politically engaged I really enjoyed writing. So I think it comes from dabbling. Like, you can't yeah. just... Pivots don't... You don't just pluck them out of thin air. You probably do a bit of dabbling and work out, like, what feels right.
1: And you must get asked this all the time because of the you know, amount of people on your programme um, and lots of the people that you work with. But when people do ask you for career advice, which I'm guessing happens Ooh. very regularly, mm-hmm. what advice are you kind of willing to impart?
3: Well, I do think work hard. So I remember I was once working at this place called The Young Foundation, and it was based in this, like, listed building. It was kind of like a house... And every floor had like a very different working culture. And the top floor was all like long lunch breaks, yoga and mindfulness and well-being and all this kind of stuff. And I remember they used to come down to our floor on the bottom, which had a lot more. We kind of worked a lot longer hours. And they would say, you know, you guys should go home. And at this time I was pretty junior. You know, you don't get paid enough to be here. And I was like, in my head, kind of, fuck you. Like, I enjoy my work. I'm into this. I'm happy to be here at 6.30. And also another friend of mine once said, like, if you're not thinking about your work on the weekend or like out of hours, you're probably not in the right job. Like it should fire up. It should feel like vital and emotional, which it has always for me. I've always like thrown myself into it. So I would say work hard with the counterbalance of, you know, the self-care stuff that I'm like generally awful at. And another thing actually you mentioned in your intro that really resonated with me is this idea of like reimagining networking. And this is actually stolen from Issa Ray, the actress. She did this little clip where she's like, everyone's obsessed with networking up, but she's like, what about networking across, like networking out to like your college friend or like who wants to collaborate on a project or whatever. And I think that's for me what I've always thought of as networking. And that's definitely what I'd recommend is like make collaborations with peers rather than thinking like, I've got to find like the most fancy, most senior person in the room and get their business card. I mean, that's bullshit. Like, let's just focus on, Doing great work and doing that in collaboration with other people, and that's what I've done in my career so far. For
1: sure. So thank you so much to Jack. And if you're interested in Year Here, uh, you can go online. You can find them everywhere you would expect to. The program is absolutely brilliant. Um, you can apply for every year. You can read all about the businesses that have been created and the difference that they're making. And I genuinely think, when I see the work that they then go on to do, I just feel like if everyone could almost be in a Year Here program, I think the world would be a better place. Oh, so thank, thank you so you. much for joining Thanks us, it. Jack. Thank, thank you. you.
2: Thank you. I'm going to bring up our next guest uh, which is an amazing lady called Shah and I first became aware of Shah Wasman in 2012 so I was on the Marketing Academy programme and someone introduced me to a business called Smarter it's a really interesting business that supported entrepreneurs and small medium enterprises grow their businesses and Shah was the co-founder and CEO of that business so I got really interested in it and I started stalking Shah from afar and when I started to look into Shah's career I really think that Shah's squiggly career should be like a book or a movie should be made out of Shah's career, undoubtedly. So let me just pick out a few of the bits that I can remember from the squiggly career CV that I have consumed from the internet with curiosity or stalkerish tendencies. So the bits that I remember. I'm going to skip the learning Japanese age nine. I think I read about that. We didn't talk about that. I'm going to skip that. Uh, And I'm going to go to uh, when Shah went to the London School of Economics funded on a scholarship by McDonald's. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) snap, fine. Uh, Okay, so that's interesting straight away. Whilst on at London School of Economics studying economics, um, Shah applied for a competition in Cosmopolitan magazine to interview Chris Eubank. Where is this going? You might think. Um, So Shah went and interviewed Chris Eubank, and so impressed him with uh, her, I think it said front in quotes in what I was reading, but we'll call it confidence, natural confidence, that he gave her a job to do PR for him while she was studying at the London School of Economics. And then she worked for him for three years doing his PR, which included doing the promotion for the UK's biggest ever boxing fight with Chris Eubank and Nigel Benn. I mean, that's about as much as I know about any kind of sport is those names. So I'm going to stop there. After that, Shah then went and founded her own business. Multiple, actually founded multiple businesses. One with Bob Geldof. Right, one that got sold to B Sky B, and then Smarter as well, which was with Theo Befetus. And also, there was a business, a PR business, that and you're one of your first clients, the first client was James Dyson before James Dyson was James Dyson, right? And along all of this, Shah has an MBA, <laughs> she's written, I know, three books and has children. and, and it's, it's just amazing, and so. Yeah, I'm a little bit daunted, but I am so interested to dig into Shah's squiggly career story and see what we can all learn from everything that you've experienced uh, from the start. So thank you very much. Welcoming Shah to the stage. Thank you. Delighted you can be here.
4: (laughs) I was trying not to laugh too hard.
2: (laughs) So what I didn't say, I didn't really talk about exactly what you're doing now. So I think let's start right present day. How would you
4: describe... What you do today. So I would say that I'm an online educator. Okay. That's what I would say. And and the funny thing is that really when you unpack it, I'm a teacher. And I grew up a single parent family, probably like a lot of people in the audience. I was the first one to actually go to university in my family. Grew up on a council estate in Hertfordshire. My mom was a teacher and I swore blind I would never, ever become a teacher because they don't make any money, which is still sadly true. I guess I just figured out a way to be able to teach and actually make a half decent living from doing so. And who do you teach and what do you teach now? So I am massively passionate that especially as the world progresses that we should be able to leverage technology to be able to really think about that it was i'm a big fan of hard work i'm really sick and tired of people especially across the internet purporting that we can all become seven figure millionaires tomorrow effortlessly when did it become a bad thing to make an effort mm-hmm. like when was our goal to do no work i can't comprehend that Equally, I don't think that we should live in a society where we spend 60, 70 hours a week working, you know, especially when you have kids. And for me, it was about really helping individuals who've got a certain point in their career and they realize that they have a passion, they have a knowledge, whether it's marketing whether it's nutrition, it could be anything. And they actually want to build their own personal brand through doing that. And rather than do one-to-one work or consultancy, that actually what they'd like to do, leverage those skills and turn that expertise into what I would call a product. So Mm -hmm. whether you create online courses I remember when I first put this idea to my board at Smarter, they literally just looked at me and thought I was insane. They said, nobody's ever going to buy online courses. No one's ever going to want to learn online. I was just thinking, guys, by the way, they were all guys. You don't get it. Like, seriously, I can see this is how we're all going to want to learn in the future. For me, it's really about empowering women in particular to build businesses that they love, so I am actually a fan of doing the work that you love. I'm also a fan of getting paid to do the work that you love, and I'm a very big fan of making a positive impact as far and as wide as you can. And can we talk a little bit about the front
2: that Chris bank noticed and the confidence? So because you've made so many big changes and bold moves, and you've probably you know you've exited businesses, you started businesses.
4: Where does that confidence come from? Honestly, it's from my background. I. I really had a incredibly challenging time as a child. I was born in America, came back here when I was two, went back to America when I was seven. My parents went through a horrific divorce. We were destitute. The council couldn't even house us. I lived in a hostel for homeless families for nearly two years. And there was a period of time when I was there. I love the fact that my bestie, Kanye King, has been my bestie for over 20 years and like we're real besties not just business besties (laughs) so we have very similar upbringings and I would say there's a lesson in this that we have supported and encouraged and championed and cheerleaded each other for the last 20 years we come from very similar backgrounds and I would say to all of you that the most important thing that you can do in your career your life your business is to be surrounded by other like-minded people not just as Rumi says the ones who will come and fan your flame but the ones when your flames go out, rock up on your door with a key to let themselves in. They bring the firewood, they bring the kindling, and they bring the fire starters. That is the single most important thing that you can do in your life, your career, or your business. Sorry, that was a little bit of a divergence. But it was an important one. It's a very important one.
2: And the flames, So you talked about kind of the fanning the flames, and sometimes they're great, and sometimes it goes out, and you need the people. In your career, when have been what we would talk about, like the squiggly highs, when those flames were like, you know, they were happy ones. And then also, has there been a moment when it's been really tough? Can you open the door a little bit to us for those experiences? Yeah,
4: probably the first incredible moment for me was when I got into the London School of Economics because part of the story that wasn't told, and I share this book because I think it's really important for any of you who are trying to do something and you just can't quite figure out how to make it work, I was adamant that the only place I wanted to study was the London School of Economics. But I was doing German, history, and English A-levels. And I was told I had to get two A's and a B to get in. And I'd already got a place at Oxford. I don't say that to brag, but I say it because my preference was LSE. I actually didn't. That was literally the only place I wanted to go to. Unfortunately, I wasn't actually very good at German. So I thought, what am I going to do? Because if I don't get the grades, then I'm not going to get in. So I decided to take kind of life into my own hands, and I rocked up. And apparently, in that year, I was the only person in the entire year that had done this. I went to see the admissions tutor, and I sat there because she had no free meetings, and I sat until she was came out for a lunch break. And I asked her what happens if I get two A's and a C, and she says, "Well, you won't get in." And I said. But Oxford has already offered me a place and I don't want to go. And she said, well, I am so sorry, Charlotte, but actually, these are our rules. And so I kept her for another half an hour telling her all the reasons why LSE was the only place that I wanted to go. And I think I did a really good job of persuading her that it was true. I remember when we got the letter through the post, giving us our, our results from the universities and our offers. And I opened it, and I had AAC. And I was like, yes! I think that was the first time I thought to myself, It's really worth sometimes stepping or over the line or pushing yourself into places that feel uncomfortable in the moment. But I've had many, many downs as well. Like many times I've done things that didn't work out. And the key I feel is to learn from it. And, you know, some of my biggest highs have been things that at the time I think felt very implausible an economics degree at LSE and then becoming the only licensed female boxing manager in the entire world. It wasn't a natural career choice. (laughs) In fact, a few years ago, Kanya and I sat on a panel together on International Women's Day with two of our other best friends, June Sao Pong and Brenda Romanis. And I'm so proud to say that every single one of us has been awarded an MBE, OBE, CBE by the Queen And we all come from very similar backgrounds. And I don't think that is a coincidence. I think there is so much power in unity. I think there is so much power in collaboration. I really, truly believe that the only person we should ever be competing with is ourselves. And that if you find your people, you hold them tight and you rise together. I think it's an amazing support network, but it's
2: almost quite intimidating because it's also it's hard to find support networks. And people often say to Sarah and I, you know, oh, how did you meet? And it was like, well, gosh, we met nearly 20 years ago and you can't necessarily find it. Have you also brought other people into your support network along the way, like mentors, advisors? And, and how
4: did you find those people? Absolutely. The first thing I think is, it's really important to be part of somebody else's support network too, not just try to find your one, but whose can you be part of finding mentors I think there's two parts to that what one is do they have the skills and the experience and the knowledge that you're looking for and you can kind of figure that out from their career history or trajectory but the second part is do you like them like do you have rapport with them if they've come from an entirely different background to you are you actually going to feel that They understand you and what your challenges are in the path that you're choosing. And by the way, just because they don't have some of my greatest mentors have been people who come from an entirely different background to me. In fact, when you stop truly loving what you're doing, sometimes we do overreact. And so I tend to give myself a six month window. Let's not just jump out of the plane. But if I still feel like that in six months, I have no hesitation saying, "Okay, this chapter is over and I'm going to go and open up a new one. Through
2: all of that reflection, advice, support, mentoring that you've had, what have you learned about yourself along the way that might have surprised you? Do you
4: want the good or the bad? Or should we do both? Base. Okay, so the bad is that just because you have an economics degree from the London School of Economics doesn't actually mean you're very good at Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> it also doesn't mean you understand money very well. I understand how to make it incredibly well, but I really don't enjoy managing it. I would have been the most useless accountant in the entire universe. I learned that That is okay as well, because I spent a huge part of my 20s, in fact, probably my entire 20s, thinking that in order to be good enough, I had to tick a whole bunch of boxes to prove that I was smart enough to be in the room with the other people who maybe had a different background to me. I'd heard some advice once, which by the way, if you've ever been given this advice, it's the most bullshit advice ever, that up until you're 40, you should focus on correcting your weaknesses. And then... After 40, you can focus on your strengths because then you'll be a well-rounded person. Um, That is the worst advice ever. And yeah, I somehow succumbed to it for a period of time until I saw sense. And what I realized is actually what you should do is double down, treble down, and quadruple down on your superpower. The things that you really are passionate about, that you love doing, that you're just naturally gifted and better at. Sure, I'm sure you guys are good at loads of things, but there will be something that you find easier to do than other people. And that's what you need to double down on, not trying to fix the fact that you're not great at Excel spreadsheets. And it turns out there's a whole chapter on that in the book, The Squiggly Career. Yeah,
2: <laughs> nice little segue for you. <laughs> um, So last question for you. You um, shared some really bad advice on strengths and weaknesses. What is some career advice that you think you have learned and that other people would benefit from taking heed of?
4: Self-awareness is key. Don't do something because you think you should. Don't do something because you're good at it. Don't do something because your career's teacher, your parents, your husband, your partner, your wife thinks it's a good idea. Really take time to think about what you love doing because we spend an awful lot of time at work. If you are not wholeheartedly passionate about what you do and I don't mean every second because I don't love every single second of what I do nobody does but if you don't on the whole have a spring in your step when you're thinking about what you've got to do the next day I would say rethink and for god's sake don't ever be afraid of changing careers and having a squiggly career because you know it's done me the world of good and if it doesn't harm Madonna and she's almost like a billionaire for reinvention (laughs) then why should it harm us
2: Shah, thank you so much. I'm so delighted that this podcast gives me the chance to meet people like Shah and Jack and Kenya. I, I'm inspired by what you do. I'm committed this year. Check out Shah's website because she has loads of different courses but at different events. I'm committed this year to come along to your retreats. I've just finished
4: it. one. I, I just finished um I run retreats once twice a year, and I run them at cost. So this is my way of giving back. So I'm fortunate, you know, I make great money, but twice a year i do something to give back to other women in business and i've just finished running one and it is it that is my soul's work you know that's what lights me up and when you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you can do most of the things to make money that gives you some time to do some of the things where you don't need to make money and that makes me happy well i'm signing up and i can't wait so look forward to to it thank you very much thank you very much guys thank you
1: So I'm delighted to welcome our final squiggly career story for this evening, Kenya King. Kenya, I feel like in my life, and actually when I think back to the things that she's done, is all about doing things first. And I think when you do things first, it's really hard. It's often way smarter to be second, I find, so you can kind of copy and learn from other people. And certainly when we started talking about squiggly careers, it wasn't like everyone went straight away, oh, yeah, that's a brilliant idea, or we're all going to kind of flock in the direction of learning about this. You know, we've been talking about this for six, seven years. We kind of have each other to develop this over time. It gains momentum and traction. But you have to course correct, you have to persevere, you have to believe that what you're doing feels like the right thing and it's something you really want to commit to. And I think if there's ever anyone who has really done that in her career, it's Kenya. And when she talks to you a bit now about kind of the MOBO movement awards or the campaigning that she's done, it's incredibly visionary and brave. And I think there are not many people like her. So I'd love to welcome Kenya to the stage for our final story. (laughs) So, Kenya, tell me about when you first started work, because you were working for a pretty young age. So what was like the first time you felt like you were in work? What was happening at that time?
5: Well, weirdly, when I look back at the kind of jobs I've had, I've kind of created myself. So the first time I became aware of having a job was at the age of eight, actually, um, when I was collecting bottles at my local park, Queen's Park. Um, I come from a large family of nine children, youngest girl, and my father died at a very, very young age. So Queen's Park was our babysitter. And I remember the rest of my family used to collect bottles and if you took it to the local cafe, they'd give you some money. I think, I can't remember what it was. Was it 10p at the time? And so I soon realised, with just no investment, but just my time, I could make a little bit of money. So I used to go out to families what and ask What are you spending them, that on? What
1: are you spending your money oh, on? Just eight.
5: sweets and, yeah. you know. I mean, Cola I, bottles? Well, my mother, growing up, used to take us to jumble sales to buy old clothes. I mean, called vintage now. They weren't called vintage then. <laughs> so I used to like to buy my own trendy clothes. So I think, I guess at the age of eight, then 10, I had a paper round. I guess I got used to going to my local Abbey National, Santander now, and I had the passbook. Oh, and I, yeah. Did yeah. you have the passbook? Yeah. Oh, I was so proud, putting in money, seeing it go up. And that in itself was a motivating factor, realising I could earn my own money. And in a way, I contributed at a very early age to the household finances, otherwise we'd get kicked out.
1: And so you're 16, what's happening about then?
5: Oh, wow. Well, gosh. I mean, think two things change my life, shape my destiny. One was, I guess, at the age of 16, I think I was 15 at the time, I went to see my careers advisor and told her what I wanted to do in my life. And I wanted to set my own business and be independent, and how I was going to change the world. And I remember the careers officer at the time saying, because I was on free school meals, that if I worked hard enough, I could get a job at Sainsbury's and perhaps come a manager. And, you know, she just basically told me I need to be realistic about my choices. And I remember kind of leaving that office feeling, wow, demoralised, demotivated. But at the same time, it kind of put the fuel in my belly that made me realise who I was destined to become was who I decided to be. And I think the second thing that kind of changed my destiny and my outlook on life was becoming a parent. You know, I became a parent at the age of 16 and so I was written off. Not a lot was expected of me. And I certainly didn't want to be a negative stereotype of a young person living on benefits. So that gave me the kind of the fire to pursue my own career.
1: And that's a lot. That's a lot for a 16 year old to contend with. Yeah. You know, you've been given career advice, which is over here. And that's completely different to what you want to be spending your time doing. You've become a parent, which is an incredibly, you know, stressful, emotional. That's, that's a lot happening in your life at that time. How did you start to figure out kind of where to start in that moment? You obviously felt, you know, you, you sort of knew what you didn't want to
5: do. But how did you figure out what you did want to do? I think at the time I felt very sorry for myself because I went from being someone who was popular at school to almost like an exile that no one talked about. And I was sent away from London where I was living to kind of like, it was almost like a mother's and babies home in Southampton. And I remember feeling sorry for myself and there was this girl that was there who was about 14. She was very tall, looked a lot older and everyone's frightened of her. And I remember one time, you know, I was speaking to her and she confided in me and she told me that, you know, I'm expecting a child and the father of my child is in prison and I can't communicate with him because I can't write. And so I was pretty shocked. So I ended up writing a poem for her which she sent from herself to him and it was incredible she went from being someone who's very angry and bitter to the most wonderful person ever and I think that changed my whole perspective on life I realized wow you know I can make an impact here I can make a difference and it changed the way I looked at the world instead of thinking about myself and my own needs I started to think about others and that changed everything for me
1: and at that moment, you'd almost had quite a lot of jobs already because you, you had always done, as <laughs> Jack was saying, like trying things out. Did you have a sense of kind of what you were good at and sort of almost the strengths that you might bring to doing your own thing?
5: I've always loved the kind of creative arts. You know, I was good at English, art, anything that was a bit too domesticated, like at school needlework or anything like that, hell no. It was like minus Z. It's like, wow, having spent my formative years watching my mother in the kitchen you know that's where she spent the whole of her time i didn't want to do anything like that so i kind of always knew i wanted to do something in the creative space but you know, I, wanted, I remember the, my local theatre was the Tritical Theatre, it's called the Kilm Theatre now, and I used to go there and spend a lot of time acting and doing the workshops and absolutely loving it, but the kind of roles weren't there at the time. You remember feeling, well, you know what, I don't want to just complain about this, I need to do something about it. And my mother, at the time, and growing up, my parents always said, education, 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 and rather like, sure, actually. You know, my parents wanted me to be a teacher, you know, my mother was always saying, you know, being the youngest girl, I was her kind of last hope. As the rest of the family, were, some of them were going astray and getting into trouble. And so, when I became a parent, I felt that I'd let my parents down. I was the one sort of put my hand up, saying, "Don't write me off yet. You know, things aren't over. There's a lot more I'm going to do with my life." So. I didn't become a teacher because I'd left school early in becoming a parent so I left school with no qualifications but my father died when I was 13 and I and you know I, I had spent growing up a lot of time in care but I'd always had his voice in my ears saying be the best you can be and so I went back to try and pursue A levels I remember getting a hot A level. I didn't do very well, but I managed to talk my way into going to Goldsmiths University. But by this time, I was juggling many, many jobs, had many squiggly careers at the same time. I was getting up very early. I was doing kind of market research, any promotional work I could. I had a young son. I would got on the housing ladder, because if you come from a large family, you're going to leave home very quickly. It's a great motivating factor. And then um, I managed to get into university, but unfortunately I got kicked out. Um, Not because I was messing around, but just because I didn't have the time to attend all the lectures. I was too busy juggling, trying to bring up my son, who was a priority to me. So... (laughs) So
1: where did MOBO come from? Where did the idea come from? You'd obviously, you were into creativity and the creative arts from an early age. Was it a kind of problem to solve that you spotted or something
5: different? Yeah, it was a huge problem. I saw the inequality that existed out there. And the truth of the matter, I was hoping somebody else would do something about it. I was surrounded by very talented, creative individuals who were, you know, demoralised, you know. They felt that their music was being used to promote products and services around the world, but they weren't deemed worthy enough to be promoted in their own right or celebrated for their achievements. And then, you know, I would bump into someone who I knew at school and I'd ask after someone who I thought was very, very talented and they'd tell me, oh, so-and-so's in prison. So I was growing up with this incredibly extraordinary individuals and you know one by one they were dropping and I thought wow I need to create a platform I need to do something about it and it was a time when Britpop was very much of the, the time but the musical landscape was changing black music wasn't being celebrated you know at all, um not in a mainstream way, and so I just felt that I needed to go around and see large organizations and tell them you 're missing a trick. you know there are a lot of young people out there you know passionate about kind of hip hop, and I was told that. And a platform like the Mobile Awards would never work. The media would not get behind it. The artists wouldn't support it. Black British artists in particular would never sell records. But I was told so many reasons why this would never work. And I thought, you know what, if I believe in this so much, I need to put my money where my mouth is. And I thought I need to commit to doing something about it. And and that was the beginning of the journey.
1: So when you've got so many people, I think, telling you this is not going to work... Where did you start? What was the kind of a tipping point or someone saying yes to something that gave you just that bit of positive momentum that you needed?
5: I realised from the beginning that I needed to prove myself You know, I'd had a very varied career. And I think about all of the jobs I ended up getting into, whether that was working as a researcher for an independent television production company. I had created my own jobs. You know, I couldn't get a job because in the creative industry sector, a lot of the time it was who you knew or having a network. I didn't have access to those networks. So I was already had that sort of freelance mentality. I had to create my own opportunities. It's not going to be given to me. I think that really helped me in terms of saying, you know what, I need to take the plunge. Once I'd made the decision that I was going to do this, there was no plan B. And I had a huge amount of pride. But at the same time, I had, I realised that, you know what? I need to kind of manage expectations because this wasn't going to happen overnight. And when I went round to see lots of people in the music industry at the time, they were very polite. (laughs) You know, we had lots of cups of tea. But at the same time, I knew that without producing the very first show, you know, no one was going to take me seriously. And coming from a background whereby I had incredible role models. So my mother was my biggest role model. You know, she'd brought up you know, nine children. Here was someone who'd set up their own business at the age of 70. Even when she had all these kids, she was always taking in a lot of homeless people. So can you imagine being in a crowded house and I'd wake up in the morning and find somebody was a drunk or homeless that my mother had taken in? And I thought, you know what? I I just had to be selfish. And I had to think of myself, no matter how difficult things are for me in my life, they're never going to be as difficult as what they were for my parents. Because, you know, they suffered a huge amount of discrimination as well.
1: And you talked a few times about creating your own opportunities. And I think lots of people listening and I'm sure some people here tonight will be thinking, that's something I would like to do. What do you think helped you to kind of create those roles? What kind of advice would you give to people if they're trying to go through a similar process where perhaps people are saying no or they don't feel like they're getting that much traction? But you want people to kind of persevere in exploring those possibilities?
5: you know, with the right advisors are many plans succeed and I know Shah has talked about that really important network of people that you can trust who we're going to give you honest advice they're not going to say when you have an idea or something you want to do oh this is wonderful they're going to say oh, yes but have you thought about have you done your homework and give you ideas give you a different perspective and I think that has worked for our kind of inner circle it's been really important because sometimes when you're starting a new business and you know I remember at the time. I'm feeling very isolated because you can't talk internally sometimes. I can't share everything. And externally, who could I talk to? So, you know, my friends... There's a saying, you know, the friends are the family you choose for yourself. And that's what happens in my life. You know, there's also like an African proverb that says, you know, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. And I think, you know, when you're feeling down and there's always so many highs and lows, it's important that you have the inspiration around you. So I know, even though I sometimes might not talk to my friends, just seeing them doing well is just incredibly inspiring for me because I I know where they've come from. I know the kind of hardship that they've had to overcome to achieve their best self.
1: When you started to see some of the people that you supported, some of the artists that you supported going on to do incredibly well, selling lots and lots of records, achieving worldwide fame did that help to kind of spur you on in terms of feeling like you going, I've started to to prove that model?
5: Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt. You know, I've looked at artists over the years. You know, you remember them when you've seen them and, you know, they've got drive and determination, but nobody knows their name. And the thing is, when you're famous and rich, everybody wants to give you free stuff, (laughs) but not when you're starting out. So, yes, when you get these huge signs or you see how young people are kind of flourishing, people that you've supported early on, that is validation in itself. You know you're doing something right, you know you're working, that helps you to overcome the many hurdles and obstacles that you'll go on your journey. So, yeah, it is very rewarding. I'm proud of so many artists that I've seen over the years, whether that's a Stormzy Cray, David, Emily Sande, Rita Ora, whether sure. it's, you know, even... Like, you know, There's so many artists that I've seen do so well, but it's down to their, their drive and their determination, their vision and not giving up. But you know that you're creating a platform that is changing lives and that's rewarding in itself.
1: What are you most proud of in terms of the change that you see has happened over the past 20 or so years since you created Moe, the work that you've done, the work you've done with lots of young people, not just with the kind of big famous artists? Yeah. Are there a couple of things that you think you know that wouldn't be there unless you had made those things happen
5: there's two things that come to mind one is so we have a mobile help musician fund along with a charity called help musicians we're giving money to support young emerging talent to fulfill their dreams whether that's touring you know whether that's finding the right team and so we kind of announced the recipients and one of the recipients put out on twitter the fact that she was about to end her life and this changed her life, this opportunity. And you take a deep breath when you read things like that, because sometimes you forget you're so bogged down in the detail that you don't always see the woods of the trees and the difference you're making. And sometimes it's nice when other people remind you and that thing came to mind. And so and the second thing came to, that comes to mind is there's an artist called Conan and he had an article in The Guardian talking about music saving lives. And he'd come from a very violent background and he'd witnessed a lot at a young age. And he talked about the kind of MOBA Awards platform and being inspired and seeing it and realised that I can get out of my circumstances. I can do something about it. I've seen people that look like me and it's totally changed their lives. And, you know, he just talked... Talked about creativity being the way out of deprivation and how music has that kind of power to kind of change to be such a great change maker and it kind of you know the article really stood with me in terms of what he was saying and what he'd witnessed that nobody should have to witness but how you know the impact it made on his life and you know that's what drives us that's what drives us to want to do more dare more and be more
1: And when you're thinking about your hopes in terms of the progress we've still got to make, because clearly there are still lots of challenges and areas that could be better, should be better, what are your kind of main priorities? Are are the things that, that you've still got that you sort of think... Oh, there's still some problems I want to solve or I'm really kind of passionate about. And I'm sure it's quite a long
5: list. (laughs) It is. Where do you start? I mean, there's a personal hat on, there's the organisation hat. I mean, as an organisation, there's so many things we want to do. So we already have apprenticeships and fellowships. We have a partnership with London Theatre Consortium, 14 different theatres, trying to help mid-level executives to go on and run big arts organisations, you know, we have so many partnerships with so many organisations. We we believe collaboration is to kind of accelerate. There's so many things I see that I still want to do. I mean, I think the creative industry sector is the fastest growing sector in the UK economy. One in 11 jobs is coming out of the creative sector.
1: I also saw today it's the number one skill for 2020 in terms of the skill that they think people will need to develop to kind of future-proof themselves in terms of work
5: that's right it's less prone to automation so you know it's such an important sector and for Britain it's our calling card we punch above our weight in terms of what we can do so I'm a short time on this planet and I want to make my time count and so that's what kind of drives and spurs me on really. And you meet uh, lots of young people at the start
1: of their career or people sort of trying to make breakthroughs in what is I imagine an incredibly tough and competitive world What advice do you give them when they're kind of starting out? Because they must ask you, because you've got such a brilliant success rate now, people must think, oh, she has the magic
5: touch. She knows what it takes. I mean, there's a lot of advice I would give. You know, I'm often saying to collaborate, to accelerate, because we don't have to work alone. And alone can be very isolating. I've always been a great believer in having the right networks. You don't need to network with lots of people. It's about building rapport. And I can see the difference that has made. You know, if you have the right supportive network, that changes lives. And so that's what I'm kind of always trying to kind of champion. Whether it's women supporting women whether it's different sectors kind of working together I always say ABC always be curious if you have it's not necessarily mentors because I've never had a formal mentor but there's lots of people out there that inspire me and so I think if there's someone you're inspired by you can latch on to them without telling them yeah tell your me mentor. about it <laughs> why do you think
1: you're here tonight <laughs> <laughs>
5: that's
1: exactly what I've
5: done <laughs> You know, that's the way to do it rather than have always looking for a formal structure. You don't always need that. You know, I've had so many phenomenal people that inspire me relentlessly. And I, I think just absorb, learn everything you can. And then that's where the magic happens.
1: Thank you so much, Kenya. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: Before I introduce our last final kind of surprise for you, I just want to reflect for a minute on what we've heard tonight. So in the book and a lot of what Sarah and I talk about, we talk about the five skills to succeed in a squiggly career and actually listening to the three people that we've had sharing their stories with us, I really feel like they have come alive in the conversation. So one of the first things we talk about is values. That's about knowing what makes you you and motivates and drives you. And Jack, I think in your stories, you really, you've gone through such a journey where you kind of really took hold of that and have let that really inform your decisions, even when they have been hard and challenging that's been the thing at your core and then with Shah, we talked about lots of different things but we talked about knowing your strengths and working with your strengths we talked about networks like the importance of sport networks and we talked about confidence or front again all things that we think are important and they're skills that you can develop yes some people might have natural talents in that area but confidence network they're all things that we can work on and then can you possibilities i mean you just open them. <laughs> you, just, you just created possibilities from things that weren't even there. And I think that's inspiring and something that, we can take heart that we can do some of those things ourselves. And the other thing when we talk about future possibilities is that even though squiggly careers can be quite confusing and you're not really certain sometimes where they're all going, sometimes having these statements that can propel you are so powerful. And you gave us loads. What you ever Do more, be more, collaborate to accelerate, always be curious. It's these kind of statements that can be such a comfort and a driving force when a lot of things are changing around us. So I think it's been amazing to hear from you and share. So thank you very much for that. So, our last closing person, and we're going to hear from this person, and then we're all going to go for a drink, which would be brilliant. I met BJ a couple of months ago. And, and so, BJ was speaking at this big event that I was at as a Changemakers summit, and it was at the American Embassy, so a big, grand room. And BJ stood in, up in front of all these people in the room and did a poem on the future of work and you know when you're sometimes at events and people have got their phones out and people are sort of talking to the next on what's next on the agenda everyone just stopped because BJ is such a compelling and engaging force and I watched and thought it was amazing and then had to go as you do onto your next thing and as I was sort of running out I saw BJ going up the stairs and I was like that was amazing and, he, and then BJ turned around and went are you squiggly and I was like well I met Helen but yes basically it's sort of part of squiggly and it turned out we'd actually been connected for quite a long time on LinkedIn and I hadn't really kind of made that point point. and BJ and I kind of got talking uh, and I shared how inspirational I found his poem that he did on stage and asked a very cheeky question because I think sometimes in squiggly careers you should ask some cheeky questions and I said would you come and do something for us would you create something for us and our community in squiggly careers and BJ is going to come up in a second and share with us a poetic manifesto for work and squiggly careers but just to introduce him before that because his story and career is amazing at 14 BJ founded SuperTuck which was a franchise based tuck shop uh, that he got students across the schools developing and then at age 20 BJ was awarded the Queen's Award for Enterprise and now at age 24 as well as being here and we're very lucky to have him BJ is also the CEO and founder of SuperTalent which is an employer brand consultancy works with large organisations, small organisations on different campaigns and programmes all to stimulate and activate diversity in the workforce. Um, So doing a amazing amazing work and i'm delighted that he could join us here tonight so over to bj and then we're going to close the evening
6: no pressure (laughs) um evening all evening all so i'm going to try and exercise i love exercises it's the foundation of my youth i want everyone to close their eyes i want us to all imagine that it's new year's eve 2029 you're waking up. You're singing your favorite song. You're getting an Uber. You're going to the party or to the home event with your family. All your loved ones are there, and everyone you're sat with and talking to is asking you, "Wow, what a decade it has been! What a decade it has been!" I want you to have a think about what are you feeling. What are you thinking? Do you have any regrets? What are you proud of? What are you grateful for? Now, the fireworks ring off, you grab the loved one and you think of a word to say to welcome yourself to 2030. Open your eyes. That word you will discover over the next 10 years. For me, the way I live my life as a young person who's growing up in society is I try to make words for my year words for my month words for my week and words for my day this morning i was listening to a motivational speech i have a routine that i go through it starts off with playing loud music so i can wake up i've got an indoor trampoline which is actually a rebounder it's not really a trampoline and it just allows me to get my blood circulation going for doing that activity i then say my manifestations um, and put my intentions for the day I then head to the shower and that's where I play a five minute meditation. And there's normally a bunch of different speakers who come on. And this morning, the speech was on courage. And all weekend I was sat writing um, what I wanted to say, and I had elements of what I've just said to you put together. But I was looking for a word, a word that kind of defined the decade I've just left. A word that I want to define the decade I'm going into. Over the last decade, I have done extreme things and I've done things that made me scared and things that made me happy. Some of the things in the last decade were not things that my parents wanted me to do. For example, leaving university after three weeks. (laughs) Some of the things I did in the last decade were things that made my parents and loved ones really proud, such as the things that Helen mentioned like supporting 5,000 young people to get into retail. For me, you have to be courageous. You have to be courageous to live. You have to be courageous to decide what you want to be. You have to be courageous to sometimes go against what people you really, really love want you to be, to really figure out who you want to be. Now, in that comes decisions about doing what you love, but you have to have that courage to make the decision to decide that you're going to take the steps because only when you take the steps that you start to see actions. Now, after you decide, you're going to have to execute because as everyone in this room probably knows, an idea on paper doesn't really mean much unless you start talking to people, unless you start taking the first steps. Can anyone relate? Now, you've decided, you've executed, When you execute, obviously you learn, right? And in the learning, you start to gain confidence. Confidence in the decisions of what the next step is, what the next step isn't. Maybe some of that confidence comes through mentorship. Maybe some of that confidence comes from being curious. That confidence is super, super important because you're not always going to have all the information you need, but through making the decision, and executing and then taking accountability and having more confidence in what you're doing, you start to make a pattern and you start to have data. Ultimately, all of these decisions and executions you make increase your ability. In some of the things that I've had to do over the last decade and I plan to do over the next decade, I do not have the ability required to do it, but it's through the confidence I take in the learning that I will build the ability to continue doing what I trying to do and get the workforce the team, the supporters, the volunteers to support me in what I'm trying to build. So we've got decision, we've got execution, we've got confidence and we have ability. In all of those things, you start to pick up data points. It's very important to always understand where you're going and understand where you've been. Some of us write on paper, some of us write on our phones like I do. Some of us have to go on walks, but becoming a fan of what the data is telling you and what other data is telling you and becoming excited about what you're trying to do is something that I try to live by. And data sounds like a technology word and I'm more of a creative at heart, but the understanding that the information I gather could really help me in taking my stuff from A to B to C or X to Y to Z It's very, very important. So data is the next step. How are you going to, over the next decade, deploy the data to keep improving? Well, luckily enough, tonight we're at Squiggly Careers, and they've got plenty of frameworks, which I've kept reading and rereading and looking at, and pointing out at things that I've done myself already, and finding new things that I haven't done myself. So I encourage everyone to start to look at data. now. As you go through these motions, you're going to need to be empathetic because you're going to meet other people around you, whether they be family members, whether they be people that are your closest friends, whether they be a partner. As humans, sometimes the journeys we're on that we're sometimes together depart. And you have to try to be empathetic at supporting other people's missions. but. Confident in that decision that you've made for yourself. And for me, those acronyms spell out decade. It is a new decade. For me, this is a manifesto for your decade, for my decade, for our decade. It's going to be a process and I'm enjoying it. And for sure, I feel like everyone in this room is already on steps to understand that their squiggly career is probably just getting started because we don't know what tomorrow has but we need to have the courage to take the steps in continuing where we are today. So, say after me, decade. Decade. Thank you.
2: So thank you again so, so much for being here, so much for all of your support now and in the future as well. Thank you. much for listening we hope some of the energy and inspiration that we felt on the night came across there as well as the inspiration from people's stories so Sarah and I will be back next week with our normal, I don't know what normal is anymore, but our normal <laughs> Sarah and I chatting about career topics, sharing different tools, sharing different advice and tips for you. If you ever have any ideas, and maybe, maybe you've got them right now, if you're thinking I've got a particular thing that I need some support with in my career, and it's not in your 100 plus back catalogue of career topics, then get in touch with us. You can either email us at amazingif.com, or if you're on Instagram, just go to @amazingif direct messages, let us know if there's a topic that you want someone recently messaged me actually on LinkedIn and they said that they thought it'd be a really interesting topic for us to do something about recruitment and squiggly careers and how we can make sure that squiggly careers were really positive as part of the recruitment process which I thought was very interesting but if you have ideas like that or any others that you think we can help on, get in touch because we do take requests as weird as that sounds
1: (laughs) and if you're thinking well how do I scroll back through 100 episodes to see whether they've done this before because that sounds like quite a lot of effort The way that I do it is I use an app which is free called Overcast, and that's how I listen to all of my podcasts. Um, And I don't know if you can do this elsewhere, so if people have got ideas, let us know. But in Overcast, you can actually search a topic. So if you searched interviews, for example, in our podcast, you would see everything that we've ever done on interviews comes up. So if you're also just thinking, I've got something top of mind, and I want to find the episode really quickly on growth mindset. You can just put in growth mindset, and it will take you straight to number 48 or whatever it might be. So, thank you very much for listening. If you've really enjoyed the podcast and you're a regular listener,
2: we would really appreciate you rating it on iTunes. Reviewing it is amazing for us, and subscribing as well makes you sure that you stay in touch and also really helps other people find us because it influences the, the Apple algorithm. So, thanks so much for listening, and we'll be back with you next week.
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye for now.